you're judged in my business on the basis of the quality of your original research publications and the extent of your scholarship, your participation at meetings and that sort of thing. So you can be anywhere and do very well in science, in mm -hmm. research science. However, if you decide that you're going to leave science, then for the typical person off the street, the name recognition of uh, Berkeley does hold more weight. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Dr. Andrew Huberman. How are you doing? I almost mispronounced my own last name. <laughs> doing great. Great to be here. This is, I think we decided this is probably the first Huberman interviewing Huberman podcast in history. Yeah. And I think we originally got connected because I think someone commented on one of your Instagram posts with, are you two related? And you commented Bronislav, which is a famous violinist, which I think we both probably have some distant connection to. Like there's something there, but we had never met, didn't know about each other until then. And so thank you for coming on. A pleasure. Yeah. I think all Hubermans probably lead back to Bronislav Huberman. For, yeah. for those that don't know, right? Among violinists, he's considered one of the greats. It's sort of like, it's kind of inside ball for, you know, I think people know who Yo-Yo Ma is. They know yep. those kinds of things. But Bronislav Huberman is considered one of the greatest. There's actually a very famous photo that I'm trying to locate for a collection or an early copy of Bronislav Huberman sitting next to Albert Einstein in oh. Einstein's office. And I forget what they're playing together, but they're playing a piece of music. And I collect science oh. stuff uh, from the last century and I'm bent on getting that. So that's a really cool collection. I like that. Like looking with your interest base, like actually finding really unique things in the science world. I haven't heard someone collecting those things. That's really cool. So to jump right in, you know, as I like to say, before you, you had your own lab at Stanford and focused on neuroscience, where a professor in neuroscience and also became one of the larger thought leaders in the space that people follow. And you seem to have also sort of done a great job of taking your studies and put it to the sort of common man, someone like me that wants to learn about how my brain works, you've become one of the people that's actually really proliferated the idea of looking at neuroscience from a, you know, an everyday perspective. I assume that didn't start at four years old. Like you weren't jumping in, maybe dissecting brains of mice or something or trying to figure out how the brain worked. Like take me way back. Where were you born? Where did it start? Okay. So it started pretty early. My father is a scientist. He's a physicist uh -huh. and met my mother who's not a scientist. She writes children's books under uh -huh. a, a different... Yeah, under a different last name. They met in New York City when my father was a graduate student. He came from Argentina and uh, on a naval scholarship and was uh, doing particle physics. And they met at a party in New York. They got married, moved to Palo Alto, California. Was there like a great pickup line, like a really good scientific pickup line there? <laughs> I didn't ask him. I know they met at a party in New York City. Yeah. And then they left out a number of details after that. Leading Fair to, enough. Uh, my sister and I, but so there's a kind of an ellipse there, but right. So they moved to Palo Alto, which was long before Silicon Valley bought a little home there for, if I told you what they paid for it, you would gasp because it, yeah. like there are two sides to Palo Alto or two ends to it. And one is very expensive. And the other is at that time was, was considered actually it was very kind of middle-class area at that time. Now, mm -hmm. most of Palo Alto has transformed into very yeah. high cost living. But in any case, they moved there. My dad got a job in industry at Xerox Park, which P-A-R-C, which was one of the original think tanks for development of some of the aspects of the personal computer, the so-called GUI interface, the GUI interface, moving pages on a screen. If you listen to Steve Jobs, a biography by Walter Isaacson, there's a description of a lot of what happened at Parks, an interesting place. Anyway, my dad was a computer scientist and physicist. So I grew up in a home where some of his graduate students would come over. He did have an, an affiliation with Stanford, although his mm -hmm. primary appointment was at Xerox. And during summers, we would go to the Aspen Center for Physics which is where some of the luminaries of the last century physics, like Murray Gilman and Feynman and Peter Kaus and these other physics greats would assemble. And I was a little kid then. So running around, I was much more interested at, when I was a kid in birds and all things having to do with wildlife and predation. I was kind of obsessed with animal, animal interactions. And I and how old were you? love okay. animals and biology. I was probably, so starting at about five or six, I developed okay. a real love of that. The earliest, I think, Mark that I might become a scientist was my dad used to walk me to school along our street. And then he would let me go on to the then kindergarten. I used to pick up a 
young lady on the way there and walk there. And he used to say, you have to go get her by yourself and then walk her the rest of the way. And he was trying to educate me in a number of things. In any case, one day he would take off down this path that would lead to Xerox Park. And we were having a discussion. I asked him what he did. And he said, he studied physics and he was explaining to me and I didn't get it. And he said, you know, the feeling the night before your birthday. And I said, yes. He said, well, I feel that way every day when I go into my laboratory. I thought, wow, like that's really cool. So I said, I want to do what you do. And he said, well, I don't think you want to do that because I think most of the great mysteries of physics are going to be solved. So, well, then what should I do? And he said, well, the, the brain's pretty interesting. We don't really understand anything about how the brain works. I said, well, that I'll work on that. I'll figure out how the brain works. And how old are you um, at this point? So we both recall that, that uh, conversation and I was six years old at that point. You were point. six, wow. I was six, but I had no idea what I was talking about. Right. I was attached to this emotional thing about the birthday every day. Sounded great to yeah. me. So if he had told me that, you know, he built rockets, I would have said, I want to build rockets, right? Yeah. So that was kind of an early seed. Now, the I was an okay student growing up until about age 13, 14. And then unfortunately, there was a very high conflict divorce in my home. My dad moved away. There was a lot of turmoil. So throughout high school, it was a very turbulent time. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to school very much. I was truant a lot. I was getting into a lot of trouble. I was actually removed from school, allowed back into school, put into another school, moved out of that school. In any case, to make a long story short, it was because of a high school girlfriend who was a year older than I was that went off to UC Santa Barbara. Yeah. And I wanted to be near her. So what happened was my senior year of high school, I was driving down there all the time, living in my car in the parking lot outside her dorm. <laughs> she was pretty terrific. And I wasn't about to let her get away. Yeah. And then I, that time I thought I would go into the fire service. I was uh -huh. very, I've always been very physical. I've always had a lot of physical energy and I discovered running and weightlifting and I wanted to join the fire service. So I was very interested in, like, if you look at my high school senior yearbook, the yeah. photo at the end is of me, I think, on a motorcycle or something. It says like future fire, like my parents put that photo there and it says like, we love you future firemen or something yeah. like that. So it has no, you know, complete deviation. Which I love because like, again, you got six years old, you had this like seed planted, but even 18 graduating high school. And again, you've built to this point something, a career in it. You still had no idea. Like you're going to be a very different path. No concept. And I had tried a number of things. So during high school, I was very heavily into skateboarding. I fell really in deep into the skateboarding community and I wasn't very good at it. A lot of people I knew got very good at it, went on to create careers, either as skateboarders or skateboard company founders and owners, clothing companies. Huh. A lot of them also unfortunately didn't do well in life, dead, jail, mental illness issues, but there were some that did very well. I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't going to succeed as an athlete. Mm -hmm. I was getting hurt a lot. That's actually what inspired me to start working out and to start strengthening my body yeah. and learning more about my body, which is still something that I care very much about for reasons that I'll get into in a moment because it weaves back into science. But in any case, there was no indication. I thought I'd become a fireman. That seemed good. I, I really wasn't good at anything else. And I don't know if I would have made a good firefighter or not, but I loved the camaraderie. I loved, I was then staying at the engine house from time to time and really enjoyed the work and the people. Yeah, I thought community service and people generally like firemen, you know, uh, firefighters, firemen and women. Yeah, they, people tend to like them because they're not often in conflict with the general public. They're often yep. almost always there to serve the general public, always. We've had that discussion yeah. with a lot of the, you know, what's going on with the police right now. And it's like, well, it's not that often. You're dealing with police more often because you don't want to than you do versus firemen. It almost, you never don't want to see them kind of thing. If right. they're there, it's they're helping someone. Absolutely. And in a very non-political way, you know, I learned at that time, you know, I developed this real interest and sensitivity to, through skateboarding, to people that grew up with a lot less opportunity than you do growing up as a kid in Palo Alto. I think it sensitized yeah. me to that, which I am grateful for that exposure. It sensitized me to the tremendous value for first responders, including police officers and firefighters. And so it was, that was a really powerful and eye-opening set of experiences. Eventually what happened was I wanted to be near my girlfriend. Yeah. And so I took the SAT mm -hmm. and I don't know how I, I didn't score extremely well. You know, I went to a very competitive high school, went to gun high school, G-U-N-N -N is the way it's spelled. It's one of the top high schools in the country. It's a public high school. And every kid I knew was like Harvard early admissions, Cornell early, you know, all this stuff. It's in the town of Stanford. And here I was, you know, I was just, but I got in, I, I did okay on the SAT, not great. And I wrote my college entrance essay, basically about the fact that I'd had this very stable upbringing until about 13, 14. And then it just really been chaos. It just... Yeah. 
and I'd been wandering and batted around or, you know, and I don't want to make it seem worse than it was, but I didn't have any direction. And I conveyed that except that I said, look, I, I think I found a direction, which is I'd like to go into the fire department. I, I see myself in some role of public service and having a bachelor's degree would, I believe would help me um, develop some leadership skills, expand my knowledge, et cetera. I did not say, I also really want to be close to my girlfriend who's already in college. But what ended up happening was I, I got in and I went. And after the first year, because I wasn't organized around my academics, I did very poorly and I, I ended up leaving. I left on a, on a leave of absence. I actually got into some trouble while I was there. Nothing too severe, but nothing great either. Nothing I'm proud of. And what ended up happening was I moved home and I went to community college for two semesters. And at that point, I really locked it down. I really decided this is it. You know, this is my opportunity to turn my life around. I'm 19 years old. I'm not going anywhere. A lot of my friends that were still back home were getting into a lot of trouble with drugs and violence. And I just made the decision. And so I moved back to school. I put myself in a studio apartment, meaning I wasn't gonna be surrounded by roommates or any kind of excitement. And basically for four years, all I really did was study, lift weights and run. And it was just a very structured living. It was lonely at times. The girlfriend and I had, had split up. She eventually graduated and moved away. But I had a professor who turned me on to neuroscience. His name was Harry Carlisle, and he was a phenomenal What did you go to school for? What was your bachelor's degree supposed to be in? So I went in undeclared, but I eventually I went and worked for this guy, worked in his lab. He took a liking to me, and I took a liking to him. And I had a strong work ethic. I've always been... I think that energy, when you start channeling it, you know, I wasn't perfect at channeling it at the beginning, but I could work. I could really put in the hours and started working in his lab. I eventually graduated, did a senior thesis in his lab, et cetera, was doing experiments, degree in psychology with a biological emphasis. Back then, there was actually no neuroscience degree at any university. A wow. few on the East Coast eventually had them, but this was back in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And so about a year before I graduated, he pulled me aside and said, you know, you might want to consider going to graduate school. And I knew a little bit about what graduate school entailed because of my dad and my early upbringing. And so I applied and I got in a couple of places and I ended up going to Berkeley. Mm -hmm. I did a master's in what back then was called behavioral neuroscience, but nowadays we would have called it neuroscience, behavior, and endocrinology. I was studying how light and some of the pathways involved with light regulate this hormone melatonin, which is involved in sleepiness. And I was looking at neuroanatomical pathways in the brain and that kind of thing. So I did a master's at Berkeley. It was supposed to be a PhD, but about halfway through, I took a course from a woman named Carla Schatz, who in the world of neurobiology is very famous. She was the one, not Donald Hebb, who coined the phrase fire together, wire together. Mm -hmm. Carla is a phenomenal a neurobiologist who discovered that behaviors early in life, as well as electrical activity of neurons while we're still in utero, still in our mom's womb, shapes the way the brain develops. Wow. And I took a course from her and was just so excited about this stuff. So I went to her and said, I want to work with you. I want to do my PhD with you. And she said, well, I'm moving to Harvard and you don't really have a lot of background in cellular molecular neuroscience. So I think you should go work for somebody who's starting their own lab. And she said, there's a woman up at Davis named Barbara Chapman, who's starting her lab. You should go up there. And I thought, I love Berkeley. I was at UC Berkeley. Like, yeah. why would I go to UC Davis? To me, Davis was a place that you stop on the way to Tahoe yeah. and going snowboarding. Exactly. Um, but I drove up there and I drove into the little town of Davis and I met with this woman, Barbara Chapman. And, you know, every once in a while, just like meeting Harry Carlisle or getting to know Carla, there are these moments of kind of intellectual or professional chemistry that you have with somebody you're not aware if they have them with you. I don't know what they thought about me at the time, but I thought I have to work for this woman. So I took my master's from Berkeley, went up to Davis. And I remember at that time, my dad and I had reconciled and I told him, I said, you know, I'm leaving Berkeley and I'm going to go to Davis to get my PhD. And look, Davis is a great school. Don't get yeah. me wrong. So but, I, but, but Berkeley's an, you know, considered an A tier school and Davis every there, there's great research going on at many universities, but yeah. he said, well, tell me more about this program. And I said, well, there are only two of us in the incoming class. And he said, well, either this is the best decision you're ever going to make or the biggest mistake you're going to make in your academic career. And I still remember that. So what happened was I got to Davis. I loved working in Barbara Chapman's lab. We were studying brain development, how the visual system developments, neuroplasticity, things mm -hmm. of that sort. I adored Barbara because she was this like really tough lady, great scientist, very rigorous, long, long, hard experiments. And I was just on fire at that point, having my dad tell me, look, you're either making the 
biggest mistake of your life or the best decision of your professional life. You know, I was a kind of an animal. I mean, I was a 25 year old guy. So I would, I actually was the only student in Barbara's lab and I would, I put tinfoil on the windows and I would lock the doors and I would just play music all day and just do experiments all day long. She had her office yeah. across the street. And I remember thinking like, I'm going to give this everything. I'm not kidding. I actually slept and lived in the office down the hall from the lab, brushed my teeth there in the morning, would go right back in. And I was in paradise. You know, for me at that age, there are these few times in life when you have the opportunity to be very pure in pure relationship to your professional or academic life. I had no relationship at that time. I had friends, you know, I dated a little bit, but I was just all in. And I'm curious, it was still the most productive period of my life. I've seen this. So I'm curious your thoughts on this. Like, you seem to have trained yourself like partially in community college. And then when you went back to Santa Barbara to just work, as you said, you just studied and worked out. And what I've seen, like work ethic, even though that drive can come from internal, you get used to it. And so that it becomes easier and easier. And I'm curious, obviously, you have the scientific side of this with the neuroscience. Like, what is it about the fact that do you think that contributed to it? Or was it just the sheer excitement of being at Davis and having this opportunity? Or do you think that hard work of just focusing and not having those outside distractions, you kind of work towards over the past sounds like four or five years before that? Yeah, it was well, it was a combination of fear, because I really, you know, I looked at myself at 18 or 19 and said, Okay, I'm not going to be a professional skateboarder. I love music, but I don't know how to play an instrument. I don't think I'm going to go into the fire service. I, the one thing I could do was learn and memorize facts. I could, I felt like something about having been involved in a lot of physical pursuits early on that were very painful, physically painful, getting yeah. injured, breaking my feet, slamming hard. I realized with academia that I wasn't going to get injured. Yeah. The, at one point I realized, like, I was like, I'm not going to get shot. I'm not going to get burned up in a building. That means the only limitation is when I decide to step away from the book, you know, and I think I took it kind of far. I used to actually set a timer. I wouldn't let myself get out of the chair, these kinds of things. I was really kind of obsessed, but I needed to build that kind of intensity. So it was one part fear, one part love of what I was doing. I also have to say, and I'm just remembering it now as you ask me the question, there's something about somebody giving me an opportunity. You know, if it's the right opportunity, I mean, these people, these highly educated, very well-trained people were saying, look, if you come here and work hard and you stay humble and learn, then you're going to get good at this thing. And to me, that's like one of the sure paths that I had ever been offered at anything. You can't say that about many things in life. So I just threw myself into it. And then what happens is, like you said, you get good at it. You get used to it. If you start getting up early for a while, you get used to it. If you start pushing through the physical pain of fatigue, you get used to it. And then what happens is I think you start to build a kind of a, an energy, which surely is something stored in the nervous system where on holidays, it's actually hard for you to slow down a little bit. I see that as a good thing because, you know, provided it's not pathologic, what that means is that you've built a capacity. Yeah. I've got a kid who's 17 right now who works out and is doing a readership with me and is learning about neuroscience and is helping me mm-hmm. with some other things, social media and whatnot. And it's amazing to see, you know, that age, they have so much energy. There's all this like reason to move. Right. And if one can learn how to channel that, it's really beautiful. And yep. so I, I got to do that early. And so by the time I got to graduate school, the experiments can be, we don't talk about this often, but a lot of experiments in science are physically taxing. At the time I was recording physiologically from brains where you would set this up and you would do this for two days. And so you would take a nap here or there. Someone would cover you while you were doing that. But these experiments would start in the morning one day and end two or three days later. So you'd stagger out of them. Well, that makes a 10 hour workday easy. But the goal was always to figure out what I could do consistently. Mm -hmm. And I've always been consistent, you know, about six days a week. I do take one full day off a week. I take a half day in the middle of the week. And back then there was no phones, no social media. Did you do that back then too? Has it always been half day and one day? So the schedule that's always worked best for me for work has been to hit Monday really hard, hit Tuesday really hard, really hard and long. And then Wednesday morning, even though I have the capacity to lean in hard, I always lean back. I try and read. I try and journal a little bit. I might sleep in a little bit that, you know, nowadays talking about sleeping in, it's like people think you're, you know, it's like this sin, but I actually, we know that the brain engages in neuroplasticity, it rewires in sleep. So I'm trying to, you know, build a reserve. So I tend to work about a half day on Wednesday and then I go hard on Thursday. I do stop work in the afternoon on Friday, Saturdays. It takes me all day to transition out of the work week. I'm trying to lower my cortisol. And then Sunday for me is usually when I achieve kind of complete rest state and then lean back in. And that's and always been the way- How do you monitor that? that? Do you actually monitor your cortisol levels or how do you- You know, one of the great things about fitness, I think that's often overlooked is that 
if done right, it can allow you to develop a real intuition for how yeah. your body and mind are, are working together. So I don't track my sleep, although my lab is doing a big study now using, we've got people wearing whoop bands and we're yeah. there, so we're monitoring their sleep. I know pretty well if I'm rested or not. So I, I do blood work. I'm really big on blood work. I like data. So I do my blood work every you know six months or so. And uh -huh. I've always been interested in supplementation. I started eating pretty clean. I mean, I love pizza, donuts, hamburgers, and that kind of stuff. But, Everybody, but yeah. clean, clean-ish, about 75, 80% of the time. Mm -hmm. Back in college, I started doing a variant of intermittent fasting, not the long ones, but you know, limiting. When I need to focus, I fast, basically. Uh -huh. uh, for the early part of the day, it, we know it does increase adrenaline and allows you to focus. So these kinds of things. And so I was kind of integrating all that stuff. And then, so graduate school went very well, meaning it was a very productive time, published a lot of papers, I also found my place in the international community of neuroscientists. The field was kind of small back then. I taught and eventually became the director of a course at a place called Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories, which is outside New York, which is very famous for molecular biology, but they hold summer courses for neuroscience and, and related fields. And I got to know all the people in my field. I started reviewing papers, et cetera. And then in my field, we do what's called a postdoc which is sort of like a residency in medicine, but there's no clinical work. So another five years of research where you're more yep. independent, learning how to do research independently. I ended up doing that at Stanford. The original intention was to do it at Harvard, but I met this guy, Ben Barris, who ran a lab at Stanford. And it was another one of these conversations where I thought, oh my goodness, it would be so much fun to work with Ben. He has such a creative and playful approach to science. He was a really special person. And I eventually decided to do my postdoc in Ben's lab. And so those five years, I was living in San Francisco, commuting down to Palo Alto. This is a time before the next big boom. So the traffic wasn't so bad. So that was an easy, easy one. I was doing some experiments at UC San Francisco, doing experiments. Yeah. And I think you touched on something there, which I've heard a lot, which is you went with what sounded fun. Like, like you have a passion for this and a deep seated passion for this at this point. And you were like, what am I going to enjoy more? Like, you know, Stanford or Harvard, I think it's a toss up in terms of like, what's going to be better on your resume or your, you know, academic career, but still you, you had a plan on Harvard, but met this person, saw that. And I've seen a lot of people, even myself, I got offered to work at Live Nation and Ticketmaster or Warner Music or this tiny little incubator where they were spinning up all these e-commerce companies. I ended up the incubator that started Dollar Shave Club. And for me, like startups were what I was passionate about. Career-wise, my nice, very, you know, great Jewish parents were like, you're going to Warner Music or Live Nation, right? I was like, I don't know. These guys seem pretty cool and fun. Like jumping in, going down that path, even though it's scary, you know, you already had such a work ethic that if you mix that with passion and excitement, you're unstoppable in that sense. So I assume that at a play in the next stage of this. Yeah. You know, I would never encourage anybody to go to the less attractive or less prestigious place simply to see how it goes. I mean, I went sure. from Berkeley to Davis and everything worked out great. Here's the dirty secret in science and research is that if you plan on being a researcher, it truly doesn't matter where you get your degree, okay? I've said this in professional development courses as scientists and people don't like to hear it, but it is true. So the fact of the matter is you're judged in my business on the basis of the quality of your original research publications and the extent of your scholarship, your participation at meetings and that sort of thing. So you can be anywhere and do very well in science, in mm -hmm. research science. However, if you decide that you're going to leave science, then for the typical person off the street, the name recognition of a, of a Berkeley does hold more weight, right? Yeah. Let's just be honest, right? So there is something to these brand name schools, right? Because yeah. in a stack of applications, you're, people are trying to vet those applications and you could have equally stellar applicants, but you know, in the job world, they're saying, oh, well, you know, here's this person from an Ivy League school and that holds more weight. So yeah. I went to Stanford, which is obviously a terrific place to do my postdoc because I met Ben and thought this guy's approach to science just really appeals to me. He had this belief that doing things that other people aren't working on is really the way to go. Mm -hmm. He also had a very intense streak of, want of public service People can read up on him if they want. His name was Ben Barris, B-A-R-R-E-S. Amazing human being. Did a lot of advocacy for people in science. So I was very excited to work with him. I was not excited, frankly, to be back in Palo Alto. I'd grown up there. I had this complicated past. So I lived in San Francisco and commuted down. I actually really wanted to be on the East Coast. Yeah. But I felt this energy around Ben. And the other thing was his lab was very special. There were about 35 people in the lab or more. And the intensity at that time was so high. And look at it, anywhere you go, 
you're going to have opportunity to work with people who are have great energy or terrible energy. And I was just really excited to be around all these extremely high performers who are highly motivated. And that was also a wonderful five years of intense, intense work. What year was that? So I was a graduate student at Davis from 2000 to 2004, and I was at Stanford as a postdoc from 2005 to 2010. Okay. And then I finished up, this was in, in a recession, mm-hmm. but at the time there was an initiative that provides some money for new professorships all the way from the NIH, from mm-hmm. National Institutes of Health. And I got a job at the University of California, San Diego. Mm-hmm. with a adjunct position at the Salk Institute, which is right down yep. the road. And UCSD is one of the top neuroscience programs in the world. It's, my wife it's actually had... got her master's in biology there. Oh, great. Yeah, great. Yeah. My lab was in Pacific Hall, which was the biology okay. building. Yep. They now have a new suite of biology buildings. And I moved down there and started my lab. Now, I loved starting my own lab. San Diego was very good to me. And I made great friends and great colleagues there. My lab was directly across the street from the Pacific Ocean, which was very nice. <laughs> Not too bad. Um, I got my first home at that time. I should say, since we're talking about professional development, you know, numerous times throughout my graduate career, you know, the dot-com boom happened. Then there was the second wave of tech in the Bay Area. And several times I had the opportunity to go make 5, 10x salary what I was making at the time, which was, you know, I wasn't poor, but a graduate student salary was pretty yep. low, especially yep. in, in the Bay Area. So why turn it down? Why why not go into that? I think it's an easy answer, but I'm curious. You know, I was very happy doing what I was doing. And, you know, I, I, who knows? I mean, I intend to have a laboratory forever, but, you know, industry is also a a great place to have a laboratory right now. I, you know, I have every intention of staying at Stanford, but at the time I looked at what was happening in industry and I thought, you know, I'd love the creative element of having a laboratory. It's really, it's your lab. You get to do what you want. I, I always say science is a little bit like government funded arts and crafts, but with a purpose, like with a biomedical purpose. Yeah. So we have to apply for money and that's painful sometimes. Although, you know, if you, you learn how to do it as a, and you can get good at it, fund your lab. I just like the idea of running my own. It's like having your own little startup. And so I just kept going and San Diego was a wonderful time. I got my bulldog puppy, who's now a big giant bulldog 10 years ago got my first home. I was teaching big courses to 400 undergraduate students. Mm-hmm. And that's where the first seed of kind of the next steps started to take place. Eventually what happened was Stanford, the lab did well, we published well, and Stanford recruited me back as a faculty member mm-hmm. in early 2016. Where and I what drove you to leave San Diego to Stanford? Like what was the difference there? Not knowing the world at all, why leave Ocean View for Stanford? Yeah. You know, at the time it was a bit of a lifestyle choice. I had a relationship in the Bay area. It was also, you know, I've always been very comfortable at Stanford in the good sense. You know, there were, there were some things at San Diego, like for instance, where my lab was located, the lab across the hall left. And so science relies on having a lot of energy. You need interaction with other people. Not so much for me, because when you're a faculty member, you're going to these meetings, you have colleagues all over the world, you're busy all the time. But for the students and postdocs, it's very important to have that vitality. Yep. And so we were we were a little stuck in a location on campus that wasn't great for us. And the opportunity to go back to Stanford to one of the flagship neuroscience departments in the world where Ben's lab had been and was, was very exciting to me. Look, you know, like I said, there, there's great research going on everywhere. The real gift of being at a place like Stanford or Harvard or MIT is that everywhere you look, the person whose lab is there is very likely to be in, in the top 1% of their field. They're the yeah. leader or among the few leaders in their field. There's also an element that does exist in San Diego too, but a real entrepreneurial spirit because of the proximity to Silicon Valley. Yeah. And Stanford is very strong in computer science and engineering. And I was starting to get interested in shifting my lab from studies on mice, genetic models to human work, VR, these kinds of the sorts of things we're doing now, which is really in collaboration with psychiatry and, and really working mainly in humans these days. So, you know, there was also that reservation, like they, everyone says, you should never go back to where you were a postdoc, never go back to where you trained as a faculty member, because they'll always see you as a postdoc. And I thought like, who made that up? And then I also did the math and I thought, okay, well, I hope my colleagues live forever, my more senior colleagues, but reality says they'll eventually retire. So I'm just going to go back, you know, and eventually I'll be the retiring guy or, you know, so this thing about intuition and making choices, maybe, maybe just to, I've never had a guiding principle for that. But one thing that I do is I, I do try and sense the physical energy. This sounds very new agey, but literally the physical energy that an interaction brings, is it a kind of positive, like I'm excited and I want to go, but I'm kind of afraid to go. That's yep. the kind of thing that gets me moving towards something. Yep. Or if it's the, 
you know, I think I should go there because there's a strategic move that might happen down the road and, you know, and, and trying to be too calculated about it. That I've learned is not the right way to go. I think this oh. is true in relationships of all kinds. Yeah. And I think there's a certain intellectual chemistry and professional chemistry. And Stanford for me is, feels like home. It feels like the right intellectual home. Mm-hmm. And if that ever changes, then that'll change. But for now, that's how it feels. And that's how it felt then. And I think when thinking about schools, especially if people are going to listen to this and think, well, I didn't get into my first choice or something like that. Many times in my life, I did not get my first choice. Yeah. But what that's always done is force me or encourage me to double down on my commitment to open up my options. You know, work buys you options. In, yep. And you could put me on Mars. I'd probably need more than some scotch tape and a screwdriver. I'd, <laughs> I'd need some microscopes and some graduate students. But, you know, if you're somebody who's curious or you're driven in your craft, you're going to find a way. And one of the, the beautiful things about science is collaboration. So it often takes some time. But recently, I've started working with David Spiegel, who's a world expert a psychiatrist in our psychiatry department in hypnosis and in mind-body relationships for controlling states of mind for sake of mental health and mental performance. And for me, I don't know how he feels about it, but he's like the perfect collaborator for me at this stage of my career. And I had no idea about him before I got there. And so I think I define curiosity as an excitement for something where you truly are unattached to the outcome right? Because that's kind of the definition of curiosity. You can't be attached to finding A or B. And the closer you can get to staying in touch with that in an environment or with people, the more curiosity, but real curiosity, not faked curiosity. Mm -hmm. And that requires being really honest with oneself. I think the more you start to unveil these gems of people, gems of mentors, gems of books, gems of all sorts of things. Yeah. So eventually I ended up being a you know professor. I run a lab. We do research on trying to recover vision for those losing their vision and who have gone blind and mainly with glaucoma and studying states of mind like stress. About two, three years ago, what happened was I started doing some consulting work with people from special operations, military in the US and in Canada Mm -hmm. um, because of the nature of the work that my lab does and developing some experimental protocols with them. And I became very good friends with a guy, his name is Pat Dossett, is a, a did nine years. Uh, He is a Navy SEAL, but he was in the the SEAL teams for nine years. And then he was at Google when we met. He started this company called Made For with Blake Mykoski, who is the founder of Tom's. Yeah, which is a behavioral science company geared towards developing healthy habits. I was brought on to head their advisory board. And at the end of 2018, Pat and I become good friends, started swimming together. He way ahead of me. It's not, not <laughs> I was going to ask, like, if you're swimming um, as fast as a seal, that's a pretty good. Feat. No, I, I'm I'm not. I want to be very clear. I like pushing myself, but no, the water's cold. We don't wear wetsuits. It is the Pacific, but he's far ahead of me in far greater capacity. The, those guys, I have a lot of friends now from, yes, from the that probably with mental stuff too, but especially with physical endeavors, they they do seem to have this kind of flip the switch kind of thing that is very yep. interesting to my lab for other reasons. But in any event, he swims way up ahead and then waits on the beach while I, you know, um, <laughs> drag myself through the water like a, like a sea turtle with asthma. But when I eventually get out of the water, we were talking one day actually after a swim and, and he said, so what are you going to do to serve the world and next year, you know, kind of what's your public service going to be? And I said, well, if I had my way, I would teach neuroscience to the general public like 60 seconds a day because there's just so much cool stuff. Yep. And going back to that young kid story, you know, the one thing when I was a little kid in elementary school, I drove everyone nuts because I used to spend all weekend reading. My favorite book was the Encyclopedia, their Guinness Book of World's Records. And I used to come into class on Mondays and I used to give these little oral reports about the world's smallest eutherian mammal or, you know, like the, and I just have this inborn compulsion to tell people about these things that I think are really cool and that I hope that they'll find really cool. And so I started teaching neuroscience on Instagram on Pat's kind of gentle nudging to do that. And then it sort of grew into discussing health related things and going on podcasts and starting next year, I'm going to launch my own podcast and to just teach neuroscience. I, I love sharing what I think are these gems of life that I've had the privilege of having access to either through my academic life or through some of the work I do with these interesting communities, including military, but other communities as well. And there seems to be a lot of interest in the brain and neuroscience. And so there again, I actually paused and thought, okay, you know, in the field of science and in academia, doing public facing education is often considered a no-no. 
that this is it's you might be surprised to learn like even the Carl Sagan's where people yeah. kind of be the physicists behind their back oh you know it's not serious science dumbing down which is a phrase I hate because what would people rather have that we talk over their heads like that's just yeah. so no, I'm it's, very it's, it's an elitist mentality it's a, yeah it's a lot of different industries I, it's funny you say Navy SEALs because one was on we had a friend of mine Brendan Webb has been on the podcast and then okay I've been working with a few and talking about like frankly proliferating not boot camp style training, but like they're real training. Like how do they actually train that people could actually go through? And people that have tried to do it in the past in different military capacity have also been looked down on like, you're not real, you sold out, that kind of thing. And it's so funny how these insular groups always try to like covet it versus opening it up and frankly trying to make the world a better place by giving some of these gifts out. Yeah, it's it's an interesting parallel. So, and I, it's one I think about a lot. So one of the the great things about military service and special operations is when those guys get out, they have that with them all the time, right? They've done that. And there's this, our society fortunately values that and hopefully will continue to value that. And many go on to do very impressive things. Pat and others, uh, you know, that I know, one who I've never met who's particularly impressive is actually is going to be on the next space mission, Johnny Kim. If you haven't seen his story mm-hmm. on the Jocko Whirling podcast, that's just amazing. I had heard about him before from some people in the teams, but his story is amazing. Harvard Med astronaut, incredible early origin story. In any event, in academia, if you leave, typically you leave to industry. A few people have done public-facing neuroscience. My friend and colleague, David Eagleman, is a well-known public-facing neuroscientist. You know, it's tricky because I think it comes from two sources. One, the sort of weird feelings about come from two sources. First of all, the question always comes up, how are you spending your time? Are you still serious about research? And, you know, I don't have kids, so I'm able to devote a lot of time to my lab and a lot of time to public education. Uh, Mm -hmm. If I had kids, I think that would be tougher to do. Although someone with more capacity than me might be able to balance both. But, you know, I'm still very committed to research. I sit on NIH review panels. I review grants and papers. I submit grants and papers. I'm still very much in the world of research science. Doing public facing work to me feels like the right calling. And there is something that happened along the way that I didn't go into in detail, but I'll just mention, I have this weird kind of blessing curse in my career, which is that I found three amazing advisors that took me under their wing. First, Harry Carlisle, then Barbara Chapman, then Ben Barris, who really nurtured me and also pushed me very, very hard, (laughs) thankfully. And Harry, unfortunately, died of suicide early. Barbara died of cancer very early. Ben died of cancer very early. And Ben, he's an MD, so he has a kind of MD humor. And he said, you know, Andrew, you're the common denominator. So, you know, like I, you know, the the joke is you don't want me to work for you. But in all seriousness, you know, I realized I'm 45 years old now that if you have an itch that you need to scratch, and it's one that, especially one that's going to serve humanity or that you believe you can channel into that, you have to do it. I mean, I don't know when the Reaper's coming for me. And I, I do not want to be the guy with cancer, whatever, that wished he had done this other thing and was just concerned because of what my colleagues were going to think. Well, and the support I think is important there is if you don't do it and it happens, you'll regret it. Like if you don't do it right now and you say, oh, in 10 years, I'll get to that. And then you, the cancer comes or whatever that Reaper comes, there's a lot of regret there. If you do it and you live for the next 60 years, you're not going to regret just jumping in and doing it. Like you might've said right. the obvious decision there too, that nobody right. cares. And, yeah. And it was important for me, not just as a statement, but because it's my passion to continue like this last year, we're fortunate we finished the year with two, you know, what I think are great research publications. Great because the people that did them did the work, the postdocs and students, and yeah. we're very proud of the work. So it's really a testament to their skills and talents. And, you know, so we're doing both. I'm doing both. I yep. think that Stanford has been wonderful. They've put some webinars out there publicly on YouTube to show that they are in support of public education. You know, I am the most anti-elitist person. I think, here's the way I look at it. I feel that if you go to a party or you're in a gathering and you're the new person and everybody is talking about somebody they know or talking in a language that you don't understand, it's actually rude. So when I'm talking to the general public, I'm going to talk about neuroscience in a way that hopefully they can digest. And as they ask more questions, I will elaborate and give more sophisticated answers. I think that one of the problems in the scientific community is that many scientists are actually very poor communicators. Any student who's ever taken a class from one of the luminaries in their field who is not a good lecturer knows exactly what I'm talking about. Now, some of them are excellent lecturers, Bob Sapolsky for instance. There's a guy at NYU, Claude Desplan, who actually works on insect vision that gives 
lectures that would make anybody, not just somebody interested in biology, just enchanted. They're just amazing. And he's a phenomenal researcher as well. So there, there are people out there and then there are people not so good at it. And so the way I look at it is as long as my lab is still continuing to do original research and as long as the general public is interested in these things, I'm going to continue to talk about it. And the other thing is that 2020 has changed everything yeah. because my lab works on respiration, breathing, vision, and stress. And so there's a lot of need right now for tools to mitigate stress, to get better at sleeping for neuroplasticity, kids, parents, first responders, military, everybody is thrown into this regime, no matter which side of the aisle you are on politically, this is a very stressful year. Absolutely. So I think it's made the public education component even more relevant. And I encourage people who are thinking about going the route of academia and aren't sure whether or not they want to run a laboratory to think about perhaps going into public education. There's always going to be the push to commercialize things, which is not a sin, right? Like many of my colleagues go and start companies that are heavily commercialized. So the idea that the information of science shouldn't be, would be hypocrisy. So it's worked out, you know, I'm wading through this landscape of, of social media and what that's like. It's, you know, you're unlike a classroom where you get to know the students and they get to know you in social media, you're getting a very fractured set of interactions. You don't really know them. They don't really know you. And you're kind of shouting back and forth through this tunnel of comments and and video clips. It's unusual, but it's been delightful and and it's been a real thrill. And right now that feels like an important calling. And so that's where I'm at. And I'll continue with it as long as people are interested. And as long as I have the drive to do so. So to ask questions for you, what do you think's next? Like you mentioned the podcast, but like, where does your vision go? You know, you've said a lot on this about like, as long as things stay interesting, you have no plans of leaving Stanford, no plans, but do you have plans for the next, let's say five years where you like you, what you're excited about? Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned five years. So one of the byproducts of getting into the academic track is that every five years, you either change places or change directions or get promoted or get asked to leave or something. I'm tenured. <laughs> so I, I don't think they're going to ask me to leave anytime soon, but nonetheless, we, we think in these five-year increments. Uh-huh. So, and I'm just now coming up on that. And so actually this morning I was spending time, I, I spent a lot of time drawing out maps of sort of where things are going. I'm big on visual displays of what's, you know, internal, it really helps me. So the next five years are definitely going to include a lot of public education. So I am working on a book that's been contracted with Simon & Schuster. It should be out next year, a neuroscience book for the general public, where they'll learn about neuroscience, learn what I hope are valuable tools, as well as some stories about how science is done. I'd like to improve scientific literacy. I'm going to continue to research tools and techniques for modulating stress, as well as for visual repair. I'm going to stay with that. I have a a bigger mission, ultimately, that is really about trying to make sure, along with the help of others, that science and technology in the United States continues along the very important trajectory that it's maintained in the past and gets even greater. There's a lot of things happening internationally right now. Of course, there's great science happening in other countries as well. But Let's face it, when you look at the Nobel Prizes every year, which is just one little window into quality science, there are many other features, but that's a very prominent one. There are prizes given to people from all over the world. But when you look historically at the number of prizes that have been given to people in the United States, it's disproportionate at a level that's just striking. You just can't deny it. Just statistically, that's the way it works out. And that's not for political reasons. That's because this country has a history of two things that make science here very special. First of all, is this idea of the independent researcher. Unlike laboratories in Europe, where you have a lot of very senior people working under one lab head, so it's very pyramidal. Mm -hmm. Here, every laboratory is sort of like its own startup. And so you have a lot of ingenuity that's happening independently. And it's very treacherous to try and raise money for these labs. It's much safer to work for somebody else and let them raise the money. But that is at risk now because of very limited federal funding for research. And so one of my big missions is to try and ensure that this model of the independent investigator, the independent laboratory in the United States is maintained going forward for the next hundred or more years, because in doing that, you have the incredible discoveries like the CRISPR discovery, this yep. year's Nobel Prize, right? And others, you, you have those discoveries that came from bacteria that are clearly going to lead to treatments for diseases that couldn't happen otherwise. So It's very important to me that people understand a little bit about the structure of science in this country and understand how federally funded science is so vitally important. Also philanthropically funded science, foundation funded science. So that's a big one. And then the other one is that 
you know, I've, I've deferred on marriage and family deliberately. I knew that when I was building my career, rather than compromise an important relationship in my life, I decided to defer. And so I do have personal goals as well. And, you know, it was important to me to get to a place in life where I could do well, or at least, you know, give my full effort to those things. And so those are important goals as well. I I've worked with people and for people who are very one dimensional, and I've worked with people that had a lot of balance in their life. The harsh reality is that having balance in your life by definition means that you can't work 20 hours a day, six or seven days a week. If you're also taking care of other beings and, and tending to those things. So I intend to get a little more balance, but um, my work drive and my, my love of work is very strong. And I, I never want to retire. I don't know that I'll die. I, I joke. I was born at Stanford hospital. I work at Stanford. So I'll probably die at Stanford, but that's a, a happy joke for me. And then non-retirement, I think is a, it's a Huberman trait. I don't know a Huberman that actually retired. <laughs> that's right. My dad is still working. There you um, go. He's, still, he's involved now in computer science and these kinds of things more than physics, but he's still working. And I don't, I don't think he'll ever stop working. His fire is still going. Yes. I'm, I feel blessed for that. The Hubermans, I don't know that we'll ever be professional athletes in my family. Maybe one will come along. My brother's um, decent, but I don't think he won't be professional. <laughs> but, you know, for people that are in their teens and 20s or thinking about career switching or thinking about science, it's a wonderful field because there's a lot of opportunities. Mentorship is baked into the academic model. So yep. there's always someone to go ask questions. Whether or not they have the right answers or not is, isn't always clear, <laughs> but it's baked into it. I, I always admire entrepreneurs because they don't always have that. They don't always have someone that's very vested in their well-being and their development. Academia, that's baked into it. You know, that's how I'm going through uh, this lifetime. And no, if it changes, sense. I'll be open to that change. Listen, it seems intentional, which there's nothing wrong with that because it seems like you're enjoying it. So last question, which is not going to be as easy maybe as it normally is, but from a neuroscience perspective, what do you think would be a great driver for someone trying to achieve their dreams? You talk about neuroplasticity and things like that. Like, whether it's becoming you know, a professor of neuroscience at Stanford or it's becoming a big executive or an athlete, like is there something that draws it all together from your studies or the things you've read that people could do to help achieve those dreams as they're younger, as they're growing up, or even as, let's say they're 45, 50 years old and just figuring it out, what can you do to help your brain on that side of things? Yes. So you mean advice that would help in any profession? like as Yeah. A, yeah. So I think um, I'm heavily biased here because this is what my lab works on, but I think the super skill whether or not it's elite military, whether or not it's entrepreneurs, finance, law, art, music, science, the super skill is to be able to gain some, not complete, but some deliberate control over your levels of focus and alertness and your levels of defocus and sleepiness. You know, I don't want to launch into a whole lecture on this. And there are a lot of podcasts out there where I've discussed this in, in different forms, but if people want more information, but we know that sleep is the time when your brain rewires. It's when all the learning that you induce takes place. It's how you keep your health. It's how you maintain your sanity, literally. It's mm-hmm. all these incredible things for mental and physical health, learning and performance. If you get good at sleeping, then you are halfway there, provided that you are good at sleeping at night, or if you're a first responder you know, in the military, at learning how to fall asleep when you can, right? Because they don't have the flexibility that others have. So getting good at that. And there's some tools that I discuss in various podcasts and on the Instagram that talk about how to get better at turning off thinking. Learning to turn off thinking in non-destructive ways is very, very beneficial. Everyone gets better at their craft from doing this. The other side of the coin is learning how to really drop into your work and understanding that focus does not mean being in this flow-like tunnel where everything's perfect, but where you're constantly pushing out. It's like, you know, the I'm old, so I remember like Star Wars, you're flying through and like, it's like pushing meteors out of the way so you can get to yeah. your destination. You're constantly doing this. That's what focus is and yeah. learning how to keep your eye on the target while doing that. And there's a lot of physical discomfort that comes from learning how to do that, that eventually relaxes. Learning how to do that for focus periods of time is very important. And I feel like the, the whole of wellness and high performance and optimal performance, or whatever you want to call it, is geared toward trying to understand how to master those transitions, whether or not it's through something physical or a supplement or a particular diet. But in the end, it all boils down to the same set of neurochemicals and the nervous system. And so there are tools that will allow you to learn to turn off your thinking. One that's particularly powerful that 
I've benefited from a lot is called Yoga Nidra, which you can get the scripts on YouTube. You just literally lie down. It means yoga sleep. You just lie down and listen to these scripts where you learn to turn off your thinking. There are a lot of great scripts at Reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I.com. This is David Spiegel's clinically tested and developed at Stanford scripts that you listen to and they, they're for mental training. Mental training in the 90s and stuff was considered kind of hokey. This is serious neuroscience that David's used to understand what brain areas are active, what brain areas are not active during these scripts and performance, pain management, tons of stuff there. And it's all free, cost-free. So I think learning how to lean in and learning how to deliberately lean out, the way to think about it in simple terms is think about you need an accelerator. You need to learn how to drive by pushing on the accelerator. You need to learn how to brake by coming off the accelerator and you need to learn how to brake by braking and you need to have an emergency brake. If yeah. you can do all that, the steering part is actually pretty easy. And then all the, you know, every field has its own dynamics and interpersonal dynamics, et cetera. But yeah. learning that how to lean in hard and then turn it off is the super skill of every elite performer that I'm aware of. And I haven't mastered it all, but every day I put something toward that. Even a one little micro example, like if you lift in the gym, learning to calm yourself deeply between sets and then ramp back up, that's a little micro practice. Learning to calm yourself while in effort on a run or a swim, there's so much to be gained from learning how to master these transitions in and out of wakefulness. So that's my recommendation. Wow, that is a great answer. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Huberman, for being on Hawk Talk. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.